Hebrews chapter number 11. This is a new uh, section in our study of the book of Hebrews. There is a turning point, a clear uh, break in thought from chapter number 10 to chapter number 11. And we talked a little bit about that last week as we closed out. And uh, The Hebrews writer is going to begin to deal with the superior principles of the Christian faith. So he has laid out a pretty definitive argument uh, to his readers how that the uh, Old Testament tabernacle and system of law and sacrifice and Levitical priesthood were insufficient uh, to save a man and to change a man, how that they should turn away from that and turn instead unto Jesus Christ. And how does a man do this? Well, he does this by placing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews takes up this grand theme and ideal of faith. He says in verse number one, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now, I've not done this throughout this entire series, but I have done it for tonight. I've uh, written down, jotted down uh, a few words from a commentator to give you as an introduction. Uh, I read this, and he said it much better than I could, so I just decided to give you his words. I want you to listen carefully to this. Faith is a common denominator of life. Everyone has faith and exercises faith almost every moment of every day. You walk into a building and immediately exercise faith in a score of ways. Faith in the architect who designed the building. Faith in the contractor and the workman who constructed the building. Faith in the quality and durability of the materials that make up the building. And you never give it a thought. When you mail a letter, make a bank deposit, or read a newspaper, you exercise faith in the post office, the bank, and the reporter. You feel sick and go to a doctor who prescribes some medicine. You take the totally illegible prescription to the drugstore and watch the druggist pour an assortment of pills into a small container. Take one of each, uh, take one of each three times a day, he says, and you do. You exercise faith in the doctor, in the drugstore, and in the mysterious capsules, the content of which you know nothing about. Faith is a common denominator of life. No one can live a single day without exercising faith, faith in men. Salvation is based on the same principle. God has thus made it available to all men everywhere without regard to education, physical ability, social status, or uh, national origin, or native talent. For everyone has faith. The basic difference between the faith exercised by the individual in the daily uh, round of life and the faith exercised by that same individual to the saving of his soul is the object of his faith. And let me pause there and say this. If you've sat under my preaching, you've heard me say this multiple times, that faith is not a dirty word in the world that we live in today. We've never had a president that wasn't a quote-unquote man of faith. Uh, when you go to these, uh, you know, public community meetings, they'll talk about the importance of faith in a community and faith in a home. Faith is not an offensive word to the world, but what is offensive is the notion of faith in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, Faith is not what saves a man. Christ is who saves a man. Faith is the means wherewith we approach unto Christ, and that's an important distinction. The Muslim puts his faith in the Koran and in Muhammad. The idolater puts his faith in graven images. The humanist puts his faith in himself. The materialist puts his faith in his money. And the religionist puts his faith in his own good works. None of these can save because of the object of faith. In each case is wrong. Saving faith is faith that rests upon Christ and him alone. The writer of Hebrews thus turns his attention to the whole question of faith and presents his readers with a significant sampling of Old Testament people who believed God when faced with something entirely new. 
Enoch had never seen anyone translated, nor had ever known, Noah had never known of a universal flood. Abraham has never, had never seen the promised land. Each believer exercised personal faith in God. Many of them died in the faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Throughout the Old Testament, this was the case, for Christ and his cross were still in the future. But now these daring Old Testament saints, uh, for a, a, as a great cloud of witnesses, standing astride the path of the Hebrew people to bar the way back to Judaism. They triumphed by looking to the living God and by believing his word, so that unseen things were seen and spiritual things be, uh, became real. They traded earthly things for heavenly things, and God honored them. The Hebrew believers must do the same. The earthly temple and its related system of religion were now to be traded for the ultimate realities in heaven. The marshaled examples of these Old Testament believers close ranks to witness to this truth. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to say is not something that is accepted truth across all circles. There is this idea that uh, of what we might call dispensational salvation. In other words, the notion that men were saved by different things in different ages. Let me say that I reject this notion. I believe that salvation has always been by faith. Now, there are good-willed and good-hearted believers that would disagree with me, and that's fine. There's a lot of people disagree with me. Half the time I disagree with myself. But... Uh, after a lot of study, and this isn't something that I've come to in the last few days. I've held this position for a number of years. But after a lot of study, it has been my conviction that a person was not saved by faith and works in the Old Testament. A person is not uh, going to be saved by faith and works during the tribulation period. A person is not going to be saved by works during the millennial reign. The only way to approach unto God is by faith. And the Hebrews writer makes that clear down in verse uh, number 6. He says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. So faith is a necessary quality in approaching unto God. Faith has always been the grounds through which men could come to God and have righteousness imputed unto them. And you say, well, preacher, what was the difference in all the various ages? The difference was the object of the faith. In other words, I don't believe that Abel looked at that lamb and understood everything about Calvary. But what he did understand was that God had prescribed a way to approach unto him. So he believed the word of God, and he trusted that what God had asked of him, because God had said it, would be sufficient. I think the same thing is true of Noah and of Enoch and true of Abraham and of various uh, individuals. In other words, I don't think, though certainly I believe that uh, there were times when the Levitical sacrifices embodied what God had asked people to do. And so them partaking in them was the exercising of faith in what God had asked of them. I do not believe that those sacrifices in and of themselves ever saved a person. I do not believe that their works ever saved them. I believe that men have always been required to approach unto God by faith. So as we approach this idea and topic of faith, there's a few things we want to say before we get into these Old Testament examples. Once you notice in the first two verses we've read, we find faith defined, faith defined. Now, if I was to give you my definition of faith, I will admit to you that it would be maybe a little different than God's. And that's not to suggest that God's wrong and I'm right. And I don't think it's necessarily to suggest that, uh, that I'm wrong either. But it is to say this, that Inasmuch as we talk about faith, God reveals some things that faith do, uh, faith does in particular here. But I think if we were to have a practical working definition of faith, we might say that faith is uh, depending effectually upon the Word of God. That's what biblical faith is. It is depending effectually upon the Word or the promises of God. 
And God defines faith explicitly by this explanation. He says, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One commentator put it this way, and I thought this was pretty good, that faith is like a sixth sense. In other words, our senses take things that cannot be seen, cannot be temporally determined, and translate them into means and modes wherewith we can communicate and grasp with them. For instance, our eyes take light waves. Now, we can see light, but we can't see light waves. But our eyes take those light waves and translate them into an image that we can then take and comprehend. Our ears do the same thing with sound waves. You can't see sound waves. Uh, they cannot be recognized by the eye. But our ear takes those, translates them into something, ideally, it gets a little tougher as we get older, but ideally that is intelligible that we can make sense of. In the same way, faith takes spiritual realities and translates them into realities in the life of the believer. So, in other words, God gives a promise. Faith looks at that promise and determines to hope in that promise and to lean on that promise. And faith then acts upon that in a way that can be seen as a reality in the life of a believer. Faith, we might say, appropriates and apprehends spiritual truths and causes an individual to act and behave appropriately in accordance with them. Faith is substance. It is substance. Uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And, of course, again, let me remind you that word hope is not an anemic word in your Bible. We use the word hope, and it's sort of anemic and, and impotent and powerless. You know, well, I hope this happens. Uh, but that's not the kind of hope that's described in your Bible. Hope in the Bible, uh, we might say, is sort of like the sound waves that faith then takes and translates into the behavior and actions of the believer. Hope is the fact that God has spoken. Faith is our ability or our willingness to then take that reality and act upon it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But then he defines it by example. And this is really the thrust of where the Hebrews writer is going. He says, for by it the elders, and who is he talking about? Well, all the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Calls them the elders, meaning the patriarchs and meaning the, uh, the people of the Old Testament that were so key in the, in the Hebrew faith, and not just them, but all those that found righteousness in God uh, in the Old Testament. For by it the elders, the Bible says, obtained a good report. You'll find that phrase all through your Bible. A lot of times it'll be associated with the word to witness something. In other words, it's not suggesting that these men through faith became good people. It's not what it's saying. In fact, you'll find the very converse is true. Uh, I mean, the Old Testament is full of some rascals. You go through and see the way that people behaved. Abraham, you've heard this before, Abraham was a liar. Uh, you know, Isaac was a liar. Jacob was a, a liar and a cheat. Uh, of course, Moses was a, a murderer. And uh, we, we could look at Noah. Noah was a drunk. And David, of course, was an adulterer and a murderer. It's not to suggest that faith necessarily made them moral people. Now, faith will do that. But rather what it's saying is that God observed their faith and God bore witness to that faith and they obtained a good report from God. God imputed righteousness unto them. So we have faith defined by example. But then we see faith demonstrated. And this really is uh, the meat of the chapter. And there are several different illustrations here that relate to the present age, that relate to the patriarchal age, uh, that relate to the primeval age, uh, that relate uh, all the way down to the patriotic age. And we're going to spend a good chunk of time this week and next week dealing with it. But notice the very first thing, the present age is spoken of. Now, this is encouraging when I saw this. The Bible says in verse 3, through faith, we understand 
that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, one of the things that encourages me most about that is, have you ever noticed who heads up that hall of faith? Who's the first person that's spoken of? It's we. Not Abel, not Enoch, not Noah, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, not Jephthah, not Gideon, not Barak. Now, they come later, of course. But the first thing God reveals to us is that faith is something that is relevant and presently working in your life and mine. If we come to God, and he's going to deal with this later, we come believing because there is not necessarily any tangible proof that we can lay our hands on. But we come to God believing God's word that he is and that he is who he says he is. We'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, but has it ever dawned on you that uh, the Bible does not argue for the existence of God, it merely states God's existence. How does the Bible begin? It begins with, in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, this is why you should think God exists. And it reminds me of this truth that if a person rejects the very existence of God, there might be a lot of ways God can get their attention, but i found that oftentimes you're wasting your time trying to, from the Bible, argue biblical truth with people that reject the notion that God has given us his word. One of the first things Oliver Green would ask somebody when he witnessed to him is he'd say, do you believe this Bible's the Word of God? And if, if they balked at that, more often than not, he'd say, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Uh, we must begin by believing what God says about himself. And you've rightly heard this said, that if we can accept the first verse of the Bible, nothing else should be a problem. If we can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then why should we struggle with anything else that the Bible says about God? And so we notice there's two things that are referenced here. Number one, the origin of the universe is dealt with. Now, this is something that man still claims to debate. In fact, I was just reading an article the other day where the Pope came out and said that uh, evolution and the Big Bang Theory are not contradictory to the notion of a creator. And I might say this, they are, however, contradictory to any substantial scientific evidence. But uh, what he was claiming is that, well, God created the world, but he created it through a Big Bang. Um, you know, I guess people can believe that, and that's fine, that's their business. I don't know that God's going to send someone to hell for believing that or anything. But I find no scriptural evidence that would suggest that. And we understand that what we believe about the origins of the universe must be sourced in faith, because nobody was there. Right? When a scientist say, based upon all the scientific evidence that we have, we can authoritatively say that this is how the universe was created. That's not scientific evidence. Scientific evidence, science, by the very definition of it, is something that must be consistently provable. And they can't consistently prove that. So when somebody comes in and starts trying to say, well, science this and science that, understand that science is of God. There, it, there's nothing wrong with science. But science, just as anything, has its limitations. And one of the things that science cannot definitively reveal to mankind is the origin of the universe, because there is no eyewitness testimony beyond God. And there is no way to replicate the creation of the universe. So when a scientist says, we know this is how the universe was created, they are not speaking scientifically, they are speaking philosophically. They're not telling you what they know, they're telling you what they believe. And they're entitled to their belief, but of course we know that today uh, these things are not taught merely as a theory or a philosophy or a belief, they are taught dogmatically as science. 
Well, the origin of the universe is revealed by God in Genesis 1-1, and it is revisited here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. And it's through faith that we apprehend this truth. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, that's exactly how God said he created the world. And the Hebrews writer does not do anything to deviate that. He says God created the world by his word. And, of course, Genesis tells us he created it by speaking. He said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Uh, and uh, that's what the Hebrew writer says. Uh, you say, preacher, I have trouble with that. I, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, if you can believe that there's a God, an all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who is limitless in his ability, then what should be the barrier to us believing that God could create all things in that manner? God can do so because God said that's how he did it. And if God said so, then we, there should be nothing that dislodges our belief and faith in how God said and what God said. So we understand something about the origin of the universe. Then notice, second, we understand something about the order of the universe. And I think there's a lot we could say about this, and I wish I had about six hours to just deal with this one portion of this verse, but we don't. It says, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, I believe there are, are two understandings of that, or we might say two applications of it. One is this. We understand, based upon the laws of thermodynamics, that matter is neither created nor destroyed. That's what science tells us. And yet we also understand that if that is the case, the universe would have to be infinite, which would also operate outside the bounds of what science could suggest, because we understand that the universe is slowing down, right? If the universe is slowing down, it had to begin at some point. There's a shelf life to the universe. The sun is burning out. The stars are burning out. There is a shelf life. Well, now, if something is reducing, then it must have began at a point. And I believe that in the very substance of what the writer is telling us, what he's pointing to is that we by faith understand that the things that we touch and sense and feel and experience around us were created not by temporal, physical, materialistic means, but they are sourced in the spiritual realm, namely God's Word, as the Bible says. But also I think there's something very fascinating scientifically here that needs to be pointed out, which is this. Everything around us, when you get down on the very most fundamental level, is nothing more than energy. Energy passing into and out of motion. This pulpit right here is energy. Our physical bodies are energy. Now, energy is not something that you can see. It's sort of like the wind. You can see the results of it, but you cannot see the energy itself. Uh, I was looking the other day, and, and I don't want to get too far in the rabbit hole with this, but I was looking, I don't know if you know what a fire piston is. But a fire piston is, is something that people use to create a, a fire, build a fire for a campfire. What it is, is it is a tube with a rod that inserts into it. It has a little O-ring that seats in there. You take a piece of flammable material, usually char cloth, and, and put it in the end of that tube, and then take it and slam down on it, drive that piston in there. When you do that, the energy and the friction creates temperatures north of 500 degrees and will uh, catch that char cloth on fire. And you say, preacher, that's impossible. Well, that's how a diesel engine works. <laughs> Same principle. Um, so uh, I was watching a video on them the other day, and they had one that was clear so that you could see what was going on. And you could see they'd slow it down, and you could see as the air compressed down in there, all of a sudden flame would just erupt, as it were, out of nowhere. Well, it didn't come out of nowhere. There was energy that was transferring at a very high rate of speed, but you couldn't see the energy. You saw the results, the effects of it, but you couldn't see the energy itself. Now, isn't it just like God to be so far ahead of the scientific curve that he reminds us that the things which we see are not made of things which do appear? 
There may It's just energy passing into and out of motion. So, as is always the case, the Bible is, you know, like millennia ahead of science. <laughs> and we know that's true. There, there's a bunch of people around now that believe the earth is flat. Don't argue with me about it. I don't believe it. I don't know how people believe it, but there are people around that believe the earth is flat. Uh, this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Of course, that was the accepted theory amongst humanity for uh, thousands of years until, uh, you know, uh, scientists began to read their Bibles and realize that God said that he's the God that sits on the circle of the earth. And no telling the number of scientists that were imprisoned and persecuted and jailed for stating that truth. But, of course, guess what? Now that we can float around the earth, we realize it's round, Right. Uh, so God was ahead of science. Same thing is true about germs. You know, before germs were ever a known thing, and this is the reason people died. Uh, life expectancy was so short in human history for so long. Nobody had any idea how germs worked, right? You'd have the bubonic plague, and you'd be hugging up on somebody and kissing on them and coughing all over their food because you had no idea that diseases were communicable and that germs were trans, you know, could be transmitted from one individual to another. It's the reason, like a quarter of Europe died from the plague. But long before that, God had written in his holy word that the law of the leper was that if a man was a leper, he would stay downwind of somebody and he was to cover his mouth. And if he was approaching someone, he was to cry out, unclean, unclean. You know why that is? Because God knew something about germs before man knew anything about germs. So the ultimate scientific authority is always the word of God. Now, the Bible is not a science book. There's plenty that is scientific that is outside of what God touches on. But mark her down that anywhere where science and the Bible disagree, the Bible's always right. It just always is. It's the Creator's book. He knows what He created. He knows what He has, has set forth to us. And by the way, science is never changing field, too. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the young man that was running across a college campus, and somebody stopped him and said, where are you running to? He said, i got a new physics textbook, and I'm trying to make it to class before it's out of date. <laughs> you know, the, the fact is, what scientists believe today, they did not believe ten years ago. And what they believe today, they probably won't believe in 10 years. Science is always in flux, and that's the nature of science. It's not a bad thing, uh, but God's Word never changes. So God is absolute, and He's absolutely true in all ways. So it begins with the present age, but then He moves on to the primeval age. In other words, the age before the flood. And He gives us three examples. The first one's in verse 4. We see Abel as an example. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So Abel teaches us something about faith worshiping aright, worshiping God aright. And we might say this, that Abel teaches us that faith in God can overcome sin. Faith in God can overcome sin. Notice first off the worth of Abel's sacrifice. God calls it a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain, of course, is Abel's brother. Cain is the first purveyor. He is the inventor. He is the founder of false religion. His religion said, I can get to God by planting a garden and raising good vegetables and uh, doing a lot of work, and I'll present to God the work and labor of my hands. The Bible says that God rejected that. God was not interested in the work of Cain's hands. Abel, however, was a shepherd. Now, that's interesting. He's raising flocks of sheep in a time before God permitted man to eat meat. It wasn't until after the flood that man ate meat. God told Noah that. Why was he raising flocks? Well, he understood something. He had heard from mom and daddy how that uh, there was a time whenever they had sinned and ate of forbidden fruit, 
and how that they were allowed fellowship with God, but only because God slew an animal and took those skins and rode those skins around them, and that through those skins they were permitted to have at least some semblance of fellowship with God. Abel said, hey, I'm not interested in raising vegetables that are going to perish away. I'm going to raise sheep so that I can approach unto God. It was an excellent sacrifice. God was pleased with it. And it teaches us that faith, and more particularly faith in the blood, is the means whereby we approach unto God. But then notice not only the worth of his sacrifice, but notice the witness of his sacrifice. There's two parts to this. First, there's a practical witness. And I think this is interesting. The Bible says, it says, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say God testified of his faith. And here again, we're reminded that faith in and of itself is not what gets us to God. The question is the object of your faith. What God testified of was not his faith. In other words, it wasn't that he had a more fervent way of approaching unto God than Cain did. And we might say this, that Cain in some ways was exhibiting a greater faith than Abel was. You know why? Because Abel was placing his faith in something that he had a a divine precedent for. Abel knew that God would accept the sacrifice. But Cain had no reason to believe that God would accept the work of his hands. And it reminds us of this, that people that think you can work your way to heaven... It's not that they have a problem with faith. It's that they have a problem with the object of faith. It's not that they have a problem with the idea that they have to have faith. It's just they don't want to have faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. They want to have faith in their own good works, their baptism, their church membership, their uh, penance or their charity giving or whatever it might be. But God wasn't interested in just faith alone. It was the object of faith. And so he testified of his gifts. And it reminds us that what God honors is not faith in and of itself. God doesn't, this, and by the way, Joel Osteen said this a few years ago, it made a big splash whenever he said he was on Larry King. And um, Larry King asked him, he said, what about uh, people that grow up, Muslims and Hindus and, and Orthodox Jews that reject Jesus, uh, but, you know, they're fervent and they have faith. And uh, Joel Osteen said, well, you know, Larry, it's not my place to say whether people are going to heaven or going to hell. I thought, man, what a sorry excuse. If it ain't, if, if it ain't the job of the man of God to show us how to approach unto God, then whose job is it? But he said this. This was interesting. He said, one thing I know, Larry, I've done mission work over there in India, and those people, they love God. Well, they don't love God unless they know Christ. They don't love God unless they approach unto God through Jesus Christ. Because if you've rejected the Son, you've rejected the Father. First John teaches us that. And so what he was doing is he was elevating and deifying their faith. He was saying, well, these people have faith. It's not faith that gets a man to God. It's faith that gets us to Christ. It's Christ that gets us to God. Even back in uh, these days, God was giving testimony to the witness of the blood in the life of Abel. But then we see there is a perpetual witness. The Bible says, and by it, he being dead yet speaketh. To this day, we can look back to the sacrifice that Abel gave in the garden and see that Cain was wrong and Abel was right. So we see Abel as an example, and Abel is faith worshiping aright, and it reminds us that faith in Christ can overcome sin. But then we find Enoch. Enoch reminds us of fruit walking aright. And it also reminds us that faith in Christ can overcome death. Notice what it says in verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now remember, In Abel's example, the object of his faith was that God had said, you approach unto me by blood. In Enoch's example, God had uh, never translated anyone, but it had been made clear that the way of God was the way of life and that the way of Cain was the way of death. 
that if you would walk with God, God would honor that. And Enoch was aware of that. In fact, the book of Jude talks about how that God had prophesied through him that he would come with judgment of ten thousands of his saints. So the thing that God had witnessed to Enoch was that walking with God has blessing and that walking contrary to God has judgment. Enoch, he believed that. We see the fruit of his faith. The Bible says he was translated that he should not see death. He was translated. In other words, the fruit of his faith was that God spared him of death. Uh, one day, uh, my, my preacher used to say this, and, you know, there's certain things people say that stick with you. He said one day, he was, and I'm sure he wasn't the first person to say it, but he was the first person I heard say it. He said one day Enoch was walking with God, and God said to Enoch, hey, listen, we're closer to my place than your place. Just come on home. And he was translated, meaning that he, not that he ceased to exist. Translation carries you from one format to another. Enoch was carried from this realm to a heavenly realm. He was translated that he should not see death. Notice the force of his faith. The Bible says this, he was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Notice, first off, he was missed by his fellows. And you know, you'll read your Bible sometimes and think, how did I ever miss that? Notice that it says he was not found. I don't know about you, but it's one thing for something to be missing. But to say something has not been found requires that somebody's looking for it. In other words, there came a day when people began to ask what happened to Enoch. All the days that Enoch walked this earth, I'm sure he did not have a lot of respect for walking with God. They saw that. They saw that testimony. But I'm sure he was walking different than how most of the world walked. And as most of uh, those that served God, he probably was not appreciated in his time. But as soon as he was gone, people began to look for him. They began to try to find him. So he was missed by his fellows, but he was marked by his fellows. The Bible says he had this testimony that he pleased God. People knew that he was a godly man. People knew even if the world was not happy with him. And Enoch lived in a very apostate time. He's right smack dab in the middle from Adam to the flood. He's the seventh from Adam and seventh to the flood. Uh, Lamech is the person on the converse side of, of Enoch. Lamech was the seventh from Cain. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, Enoch was the seventh from, from Adam. And he was living in a very uh, a time that the Bible says God looked at and he saw that the imagination of man was, was on evil and was wicked continually. But he walked with God, and people saw it and people noticed it. And then I want you to notice not only the force of his faith, but the fundamentals of his faith. There was a great impossibility. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So he points back to Enoch, and he says, the Bible says that God was pleased with Enoch. So he must have been a man of faith for this reason. There are two things if a person is going to approach unto God that they must believe. Everybody that is interested in God, this isn't just true of believers, but it's true of even people that are misguided in their faith. Anybody that has a desire to please God, they must believe two things. One, that he is. You've got to believe in the existence of God. You must believe that he is. The second, you must believe that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, you don't just have to believe he exists, but you have to believe that he's interested in humanity. Interested in humanity. The deist concept of God is the great clockwinder that sits up in heaven and doesn't care about what mankind does. Does not allow any room for a faith that changes a person's life. Because if God's not interested in you, why would you be interested in him? So if you approach unto God, you must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then we find Noah. Noah is an example of faith witnessing aright. And we learn from Noah that faith in Christ can overcome judgment. 
judgment. Look what it says in verse number 7. The Bible says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So we notice a few things. One, we notice he was mindful of the word of God. God spoke to Noah and said, Noah, it's going to rain. Uh, I'm uh, part of that group that believes it had never rained on earth before this happened. And then we have every reason to believe that over a century passed before the rain ever fell. Over a century passed before the rain ever fell. In all that time, I'm sure he was the object of a lot of scorn. But he knew God had spoken. And if God had spoken, that was enough. That was enough. He was mindful of the Word of God. And, of course, you know, we understand that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When God had spoke, he listened. Then we notice he was moved by the fear of God. People say, I've heard them say sometimes, well, I just don't believe you ought to try to get people saved through fear. Noah was moved with fear. When I got saved, I was afraid. I was afraid I'd die and go to hell. God spoke to my heart and said, hey, listen, you're on your way to hell. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to try shock and awe preaching and try to jar and, and alarm people's senses and things like that. I'm not advocating that, but I am saying this, that fear is a perfectly pure and biblical motivation to come to Christ. Noah was moved with fear. He knew the rain was getting ready to fall. Then notice what it says. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. He was mighty in the service of God. Now, think about this. The testimony of Noah was enough for God in justice to condemn the whole world to death. Whatever we may think about Noah, he walked with God enough, and people saw enough of God in his life that two things happened. One, his family trusted and was saved. It reminds me of this. If we'll walk with God, we may not reach the whole world, but God will give us people that we reach. It wasn't many But notice that for Noah, even though he didn't reach the whole world, the ones he reached became the whole world to him. The whole world to him. Before it was all said and done, he had reached his family. But then notice, too, it was enough for there to be a reckoning amongst the whole world. Whatever type of faith and whatever degree of faith Noah had, it was enough that God was able to look at a world and say, you are without excuse Noah has preached righteousness. He has built the ark. Judgment is coming. His witness has been sufficient. And understand this, that, you know, he's almost an example of the commandment which was ordained unto life was found to be unto death. In other words, in Noah, though it saved his family, it condemned the world because his witness was that strong. You know, we talk a lot about soul winning. And I believe we ought to win people to Christ. But really what we're in the business of is soul warning. Because we cannot force anyone to be saved. But what we can do is live in such a way that people are without excuse, that they can look in our lives and see God is real, just as they did in Noah's life. And notice that he is marked as a child of God. The Bible says he became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. It can't be any clearer. He didn't get no secondhand salvation. He got the righteousness, which is by faith. Now we notice, we move on to a second part. And the Hebrews writer spends a lot of time on the life of Abraham. This is appropriate. Abraham is the father of all them that believe, Paul tells us. And uh, he is uh, called faithful Abraham in the Bible. Uh, Abraham is not a perfect man, but he is a man that walked with God. And the Hebrews writer spends an an, uh, emphatic amount of space. I was going to say excessive, but it's not excessive. It's exactly what it ought to be. But spends a good, healthy portion of of time and, and space in the Bible dealing with Abraham's walk. 
And he deals with three elements of it. First off, we see faith counting on the promises of God, and we see Abraham. Faith having to do with an impossible call. So where does the life of Abraham begin as far as Scripture is concerned? The Bible says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing whither he went. Notice first what God told him. God said, Abraham, come out. I want you to remember this principle. It's a biblical principle. Faith cometh by hearing, book Romans chapter 10 says, and hearing by the word of God. It is not faith if it is birthed through the imagination of our fancy. There's all kinds of people. They'll say, well, God told me to do this. Listen, you better be careful about saying that. God does not take lightly when we put words in his mouth. Uh, there's all kinds of people. In fact, I could find you every manner of wickedness and sin in this world, and there'd be somebody that would say God told them to do it. Hey, listen, Jim Jones down in South America, you know why all them people committed suicide? Because Jim Jones said God told me to do it. God told me to do it. And they listened. But faith is not sourced in our fancy. Faith is sourced... In the word of God. So God spoke to Abraham. And we notice first off the immediate exercise of his faith. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, Abraham didn't obey immediately. Uh, we know that he took Lot with him. And we know that he, he tried to, you know, he went to Paran and, and he, he took his uh, father-in-law with him. And listen, I understand all that. But when God gives the testimony of Abraham, he says Abraham obeyed. And it reminds me of this, that though slow obedience is disobedience that God is willing for second chances. And the Bible says about Abraham that he obeyed. So one minute he's a pagan, the next minute he's a pilgrim. Doesn't that teach us something about the dynamic of faith? That faith works immediately in the life of the believer. But then notice the immense extent of his faith. What was he doing? He was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. God said to Abraham, I want you to go. Abraham said, where? God said, I'll tell you when you get there. He left everything behind. He left his gods behind. He left his way of life behind. Abraham was a wealthy man. We have every reason to believe that he may have left more wealth behind. But he stepped out in all of it in response to God's word. Now, what was the object of his faith? It was the promise of God that if he would step out in faith, God would take him to a place, give him an inheritance. And Abraham steps out in faith. Notice not only what God told him, but notice what God taught him. He taught him how to live by faith. Verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. We notice three things. One, that he became a pilgrim in God's purposes. He went from being a stationary individual to being a transient individual. And I, and I hate to use that word transient. It implies he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where he was going, but God knew where he was going. So living by faith means obeying in that first step and trusting the rest of the steps to God. We are so limited in our faith because we want the whole plan before we'll ever obey in the first step. I've learned this with my little boy. There's times, and it's not out of meanness, and it's not out of cruelty, and it's not out of some kind of sadistic curiosity, but there'll be times with my child, and I'm sure there were times with your child or times with children when you were young, that you had an adult say something to you and you said, Why? And they said something like this, you don't need to know why. You just need to know what. You just need to step out. And you need to do it. Sometimes it's because they wouldn't have understood. Sometimes it's because they wouldn't have done it. I'm not above tricking my child. Somebody say amen to that. Sometimes I don't tell him what we're doing because he wouldn't want to do it. Amen. And I think God sometimes is that way. He knows what we would balk at. 
But God gives us information on a need-to-know basis. And when we need to know, he'll tell us. So God taught him how to live by faith. He became a pilgrim in God's purposes. He became a partner with God's people. He went from living with a bulk of family, with a multitude of family, to where now who is he associated with? He's dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. Isaac and Jacob. His whole world became God's people. He had no kinship with the Canaanites. His whole world became God's people. Living by faith means fellowshipping with God's people, loving God's people. And then he became a partaker in God's promises. The Bible says they became heirs with him of the same promise. So the thing that drove him in life was what the word of God said and taught and revealed. God taught him how to live by faith, but God taught him where to look by faith. Verse number 10, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That word looked is interesting. It has the idea of a stretched out hand. And it means to reach after something. In other words, Abraham went from being what he would have probably said was to some degree comfortable and satisfied in Ur to living a life with stretched out hands reaching for God's promises. You know, isn't that how it is with us as believers? Well, oftentimes, I'll be honest now, there's a lot of lost people that feel an emptiness inside, but there's a lot of lost people that don't feel an emptiness inside. They're satisfied in their sin. Uh, but then once God saves them, changes their life, they live their life in expectant hope, expectant, yeah, eagerly expecting the promises of God. And to live the life of faith means to live with a forward look. It means to be looking for heaven, to be looking for the coming of Christ, to be looking for God to set things in order. So we see faith having to do with an impossible call. Then I want you to notice, you can flip your notes there, we see faith having to do with an impossible condition. Notice verses 11 and 12, as it related to the patriarch personally, he had a problem. The Bible says, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who promised. So notice one of the things that God points to is the condition of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Sarah was an old woman. Uh, whenever they left uh, Ur, we have every reason to believe that Abraham was about 75 years old and Sarah was nearing in on that. And they were past the years of having children. Boy, I, and I'm not going to ask for a raised hand, but I bet there's some folks in here that's glad they're past the age of raising children. <laughs> and Abraham thought he was done. Thought he was done. But God spoke, said, I'm going to give you a, a land and I'm going to give you a lad. I'm going to give you a promised child. Well, how was God going to do that? Sarah was old. She was unable. It was impossible. And God makes it clear she was impossible. The Bible does not just say that Sarah thought she was past age. The Bible says she was past age. The biological clock had run down. But nothing's impossible for God. God gave her a child. I've always liked this where the Bible says she judged him faithful who had promised. She looked at God's track record and said, yep, God will do it. God will do it. She looked at everything God had done in the past and said, yep, God will do it. God will do it. And, you know, a lot of times faith has to do that. It has to go back to the bank of God's past deliverances and make a withdrawal and say, listen, things may look dismal, but God's done much bigger than this, and I can trust him. We notice the condition of Abraham's wife, but we notice the condition in Abraham's life himself. It wasn't all on her. The Bible says, verse number 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. I think there are two applications to this. One, I think Abraham was as good as dead. I think his body was just as dead as her body was. But God gave life. And then I think there's another application that relates to Isaac. 
that uh, as we look later on, and we'll see this when we get a little bit further down, that Isaac, of course, had a death sentence on him, but God, through his promise, delivered him. So God answered him both of these ways. And then we see as it related to the patriarch positionally or the patriarchs positionally. Look what it says in verse number 13, the seeming failure of the promise. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. That must have been dismal. Abraham, when he dies, he has Isaac, but he doesn't have the land. He doesn't have a nation. He has Isaac. One child that can be reckoned as a child of promise. Isaac, when he dies, uh, he has Jacob and Esau, uh, but only Jacob is a a child of, of promise. Jacob, when he dies, he's got 12 boys and they're all rascals. But here they are in the land of Egypt, hundreds and thousands of miles away from the promised land. These all died in the faith, not having received the promises. But once you notice not only the seeming failure of the promise, but notice the sure fulfillment of the promise, they knew that God would keep his word. Notice first off their bold assurance. These all died in the faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Notice first off their bold assurance. The Bible says they saw them. That teaches us something about faith. They saw them. They didn't just hear them. They saw them. What does that recommend and suggest to us? It suggests this thought that it became a reality in their life. How many times have you heard someone say, I'll believe it when I what? When I see it. The Bible says of these men, they saw it. They saw it. And it tells us this, that faith can grab hold of God's word and promises and can make it a reality in our life. They were confident. You'll see this in all of their lives. In fact, he deals with it later on. But every one of them, when they died, they died with a belief that Canaan was theirs. The only piece of real estate Abraham ever owned in Canaan was a grave plot. Why did he buy one there? Because he knew that was where God was going to give him the land. Same thing is true of Isaac, just about. With Jacob, he doesn't die there. He dies in Egypt, but he dies and he gives this prophecy and promise that one day they're going to come back into the land. And when Joseph, when he dies, he has them keep his bones. And he says, when you come back into Egypt, carry my bones with you. I don't know about you, but when a man's laying on his deathbed, he doesn't have much reason to lie. He doesn't have much reason to send folks on wild goose chases. Why did they do this? Because they knew in their heart of hearts, faith had made concrete something that the temporal senses could not apprehend. They believed God's word. Notice not only their bold assurance, but notice their believing attitude. The Bible says three things. One, that they did this without complaint. Says, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Listen, they didn't walk around pour in the mouth, down in the mouth, complaining. They were rejoicing the fact that God had been willing to choose them and to bless them and to give them these promises. Uh, they didn't walk around with complaint. Let me just say this. We have nothing to complain about. Oh, do we have things that aren't the way we wish they were? Sure we do. Of course we do. But we have no excuse to com- We might have reasons to complain, but we have no excuse to complain. Because God has been far too good for us. The life of faith is not a life of murmuring and complaint. The life of faith grabs hold of what God has given through his word and promise and rejoices in it. There was no complaint. Notice verse 15. 
Uh, well, look at verse 14. We won't skip over. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And certainly they had done that. Verse 15, we see no compromise. The Bible says, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You ever think about the fact that Abraham could have gone back to Ur any old time he wanted to? Any time he wanted to. But here's the problem. God had already given him a new home in Canaan. And he was not mindful of Ur. In other words, he didn't let it occupy his mind. We can't help but think of Lot's wife, who whenever they left Sodom and Gomorrah, they had left Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom and Gomorrah hadn't left her. And she cast her gaze backwards and looked and was turned into a pillar of salt in God's judgment. Doesn't this have a particular application to these Hebrew believers? Here they are standing at the door, the cross in front of them, the Old Testament law behind them. And he's saying to these Hebrew believers, hey, listen, just like Abraham of old, who had less light than you have. <laughs> in other words, Abraham, all he had was just a few sentences from God. But now these Hebrew believers and us in this day of grace, we bask in all of the revelation of Jesus Christ and all the light and glory of Calvary and of New Testament truth and of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. If they were not mindful, then we ought not be mindful. And he's saying to these Hebrew believers, hey, if they had been mindful, in other words, if you spend all your time looking backwards, that's where you're going to wind up. One, one way for sure to trip is to be looking the other way. That's a sure way to trip. And by the way, another good way to trip is to be running from something instead of running to something. Uh, you mark her down. I'm, I'm sadistic. Sometimes I like to get on the Internet and just watch videos of people falling down. All right. And without fail, it's usually when they're running from something, not when they're running to something. So we see no compromise. They're not going back. But then we see uh, no comparison. Verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Well, I like that. Uh, I, I see in that passage that they are recognized. God's not ashamed to be called their God. You know that over and over again in the Old Testament, God, when he'd give his name, he'd say, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God was not ashamed to be called their God. You know why? Because they weren't ashamed to be called his child. And God bore no shame for them. They were recognized, but then they were rewarded. The Bible says, uh, for he hath prepared for them a city. He hath prepared for them a city. So faith gazes frontward. It gazes forward. Then I want you to notice faith having to do with an impossible command. Look at verse number 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a Figure. Notice, number one, the magnitude of his trial. Notice the way God says this. God did not say that Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac. He says that Abraham offered up Isaac. And it tells us this, that in Abraham's mind and heart, it was a settled matter. He didn't go up on that mountain playing chicken with God. He went up there with the fire, with the knife, with the wood, and he went up there convinced in his heart of hearts that he would lay Isaac on that altar, draw that blade across his throat, and kill him. God saw and understood that his faith had moved him to that degree and that Abraham was not bluffing. Now, here's one of the problems that people have in interpreting this passage of Scripture. 
A lot of people think that God was testing Abraham in the sense of God didn't know whether Abraham would do it, and he wanted to see if Abraham would do it. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, uh, not the least of which is this, that our God is an omniscient God, right? God knew what was going to happen before the foundation of the world. In fact, after it's all said and done, Abraham calls the place Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. And he defines it as saying this, that in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So before Abraham left there, he had a prophetic understanding of what would take place there. Certainly God knew. When the Bible uses the term testing or trying, it does not suggest the idea of God's trying to figure it out. But it has the idea of a person when they are testing or trying the purity of a precious metal. And you know what they'll do when they're trying to purge out all of the impurities? They'll raise that thing to a super high heat. And you know what happens? All the dross floats to the top. So for them, when they are trying something in that sense, it is a separating aspect. And it's not necessarily to find out if it's gold or not, but instead it's to draw out what's not gold and to leave what's only gold. Whenever God was trying and testing Abraham, it was not in the sense that God was trying to figure out what Abraham was going to do. But rather it's that God was elevating his faith to a grander level. And we learn this because of what the Bible says next. It says in verse number 19, Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. The scene on Mount Moriah was not a scene of fatality. It was a scene of faith. The idea was not, does Abraham love God more than he loves Isaac? That wasn't what it was about. We know that he loved his son. In fact, the Bible says that God says to Abraham, says, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. God knew that he loved Isaac. And the love that he had for Isaac was not contrary to his love for God. God was not jealous of his love of Isaac. But rather, what he was doing was he was giving Abraham an opportunity to act in faith. When Abraham went up on that mountain, do you remember what he said to the individuals, the servants that were with him? He said, I and the lad go yonder to worship and to return. In other words, he was saying, me and Isaac are going up on this mountain, and me and Isaac are going back off this mountain. I don't understand how that's going to happen. I don't understand what God's going to do, but I know that God gave me this child. And this child, well, he probably wasn't a child at that point, a lot of debate. Some people believe he's 33 and a half years old. Some people believe he's a teenager. Some people believe he's in his 20s. I believe he was however old he was, and we'll find out when we get to heaven. Amen. But uh, we have every reason to believe he carried the wood. So, I mean, we're not talking about a little five or six-year-old boy. Carried the wood, enough wood to give a burnt offering which consumed entirely whatever sacrifice it was of, of a human body. So he wasn't a little bitty boy. But he went up on that mountain understanding that God had given him this child. And God had said that in this child there would be a nation come forth. Isaac was not married. Isaac had no children. So Abraham looked at it and said this, I don't understand what God is doing, but I understand what God asked. And I understand that it's not my job to work out the details. It's my job to obey God's word. God will work out the details. He didn't go up on that mountain expecting to lose Isaac. He did go up on that mountain expecting to sacrifice him. But he had every confidence in the world that he'd come off that mountain with his son. And, of course, he did. This was not a scene of fatality. It was a scene 
of faith, accounting that God was able. <laughs> Boy, we, oh, my. I, I didn't come here to preach tonight, but we could do some preaching right there. Accounting that God was able. He knew he didn't understand it all, but he knew God was able to raise him up. And how did he know this? Even from the dead, from whence you just right here, you just heard my sermon that's coming up. I don't know when I'll preach it, but it's coming. <laughs> from whence also he received him in a figure. Remember what God said about Abraham back in verse number, let's see, uh, verse number 12. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. Abraham looked just like Sarah had at God's track record. He said, death is no problem for God. This child came from a dead womb and from a dead father. There was no reason to believe we'd have this child. But God's promise was more powerful than the grave. And as such, if God said it, God will do it.